anytime we start to cling to our ideas, like our concepts about the practice, the experience, the the commitment, you know, the that anytime we start to cling to it, we we are we're sort of headed for some trouble. Hello and welcome to Methods, an exploration and guided prayer and meditation. My name's Jory, and today we're talking with Marika. A former banker and business executive, Marika left his career path in search of a greater sense of authenticity and joy. Having begun mindfulness practice over 20 years ago, but keeping it in the background of her life, Marika turned to mindfulness as she began her journey of discovering a life of greater well-being and purpose. As she learned how modern neuroscience was beginning to interface with the traditions of mindfulness practice, explaining why mindfulness can be life-changing for so many people, she became increasingly inspired to share these simple tools with others and is now studying mindfulness and meditation in a teacher certification program led by Jack Cornfield and Tara Brack. Okay. All right. Marika, welcome to Methods. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jory. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do exactly? Yeah. So, um, yeah, my name is Marika Ocean Joy and, um, I worked for a long time in sort of corporate jobs. I worked at a bank and um, I worked at a sales and marketing company and um, really kind of had a moment. I had two young children and kind of had a moment of realizing like I wasn't living a life that I would choose for them. I wasn't living a life that I would hope that they would live one day and kind of got struck by this sort of sense of like, I really need to get more clear about what I care about and how I want to spend my time. And I'm setting an example, you know, for my children. And, and, um, and so that led me to reconnect with, uh, a mindfulness practice and mindfulness meditation, which had really been a part of my life since I was quite young, but had not been in the forefront for me. Um, and it also led me ultimately to leave those jobs and start to train as a mindfulness teacher and um, also um, start to work with people as a coach who maybe were in sort of a similar predicament, you know, um, feeling a little disconnected between what really mattered to them and the way they were spending a lot of their time or the way that they were focusing a lot of their energy. So that's what I do now. Okay, so you learned from Dr. Martha Beck, right? Yeah, she was my she's she's the instructor um, and the program that I worked with for coaching. So she sort of taught me sort of these coaching models that were really different than the leadership development models that I knew from being a manager and an executive in corporate setting. Um, and then from a mindfulness perspective, um, so. I guess the bigger, the longer backstory is that my parents were both interested in Buddhism. Um, and my mom had, um, gone on retreats at a place called insight meditation society, which is a Vipassana retreat center in Barrie, Massachusetts. Um, from like when they very first opened in the seventies and, you know, as I was younger, she had gone on retreat there. And so from a young age, I had gone on family retreat there and teen retreats there and was exposed to this particular, you know, style of Western taught, but Vipassana Buddhist meditation. Um, and so when I decided that I was interested in re-engaging with my practice, 
um, I learned about a class being taught by um, Jack Cornfield, who's one of the founders of that retreat center that I just mentioned, and uh, Tara Brock, who are two Western mindfulness meditation teachers um, in the insight meditation, Vipassana meditation tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I started learning from them. That's where, that's who I studied with for teacher training. So how does that approach differ from, from maybe like a more, a more religious or a more concept heavy type of meditation yeah. or training and what is what is what is coaching for people that may not know the the terminology like are you wearing a whistle around your neck and like right, right, right. well so so coach the coaching work i do i mean i have a really mindfulness-based approach to my coaching but i coach plenty of people who don't um come and work with me specifically thinking like, oh, I'm coming to get mindfulness training, right? I coach a lot of people who are just looking for guidance professionally or in their coming across like decisions or kinds of, um, I love, I love the root word crisis means to sift. So we, we have a crisis in our life could be externally created crisis, could be internally created crisis. And a lot of what happens is we find ourselves compelled to sift through what really matters to me what do i care about what do i what what am i spending a lot of time and energy on that isn't really aligned with who i am or who i am now right and and so a lot of the coaching work is really sort of helping people sift through their lives a bit and say what really matters to you what kind of life do you want and that might be work life it might be personal life Um, and what wisdom do you have inside you that could help, um, help you see a path through whatever kind of crisis wilderness you might be in, um, towards something that's closer to, um, to your desires and to your sense of freedom and authenticity. So that's coaching. And so it's, it's, there are oftentimes there's important mindfulness practices that help us get clear about what's really important to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so, so that's sort of what coaching is. And then tell me your other question was maybe a little bit more related to mindfulness practice. Well, I think, I think you kind of answered it and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, what I'm hearing, it sounds like the, uh, coaching practice is to find the antagonism in people's lives, the the thing that they think is missing, and to help them develop healthy ways of of getting there. And then the mindfulness is kind of like coupled with it to clarify what that desire actually may be. Is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, I think that's really true. I I also think. That's how, that's one of the ways mindfulness shows up in my coaching. But I will say it's interesting because the, the teacher training program that I did really focuses on secular mindfulness sort of. Um, but my life experience is of a mindfulness that was, is rooted in Buddhist tradition mm-hmm. and um, isn't secular mm-hmm. really. Um, and my experience of 
mindfulness is that for a lot of people, it starts out as sort of a practical, pragmatic, like a tool for like anxiety or grief or fear or depression or um, just the, the, the expanse of difficult emotion that we experience as humans, mindfulness can be a very useful tool, self-judgment, right? Like all these things, mindfulness can be a useful tool for learning how to work with those difficult emotions. Um, but often what begins to unfold, and I just think this is, I think this is just true about mindfulness. I don't think it's anything special that a person or a teacher or a practitioner, you know, about them. I think what unfolds is um, awareness of a sort of higher self or a loving awareness or a compassionate presence, a sort of feeling of something which is quite spiritual. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know that, I think many people start to work with mindfulness without without seeking that particular benefit. And then some come to it, you know, looking for that particular experience, of course. Um, but uh, it doesn't always start out that way. Yeah. Yeah, I like how, how you put that. It kind of, it makes me think of how, how the Buddha came to develop his path was because he saw suffering and he yeah. saw he saw the antagonism and he saw the problem and he wanted to figure out how to deal with it. And I think the same the same goes for, a lot of people that that come to like secular mindfulness mm-hmm. because they see the fruit of the practice mm-hmm. and and then i think once they see the fruit of the practice they they try to to get the fruit and then they sometimes hopefully they just end up sitting under the shade of the tree anyway yeah. um there's there's a lot of different like conceptions of what like buddhist mindfulness is and what secular mindfulness is so and I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the books, um, like the Buddha pill or Mick mm-hmm. mindfulness, like mm-hmm. how, how do you respond to, um, people that say that, that it's basically commodifying mindfulness in a way? How do you respond to that? Anything that we use as a species, basically anything human touch can be, um, can be manipulated and watered down or weakened or its its big purpose can be um, overshadowed by sort of, um, you know, short, the, sh- the way we like shorthand things and sort of shortcut things. And it's like, it's actually part of our, part of our, our genius, right? Is our ability to sort of look for like, let me make this better, faster, shorter. Mm-hmm. Like there's like lots of good that comes out of that impulse. You know, there's tools like fire or, you know, you know, tools for hunting all come out of that same impulse. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a skillful impulse in many cases, but I think that we apply that impulse to things that aren't really better when they're like faster, quicker, shorter, you know? And, and, and so I think that that, the the concern about that is valid and yet it's not unique to mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I would say that really any any religion 
is experiences that, right? People can go to church and kind of just phone it in. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that they're actually deepening a relationship with the, you know, core principles of that, that religion or that God or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think the same thing is also possible with mindfulness. Yeah. Um, That the sort of sincerity of our intentions has a big impact on the experience we have with the tools. Yeah. And I mean, Alan Watts himself said that Zen Buddhism was kind of a, a product of this larger tradition that was kind of stripped for for export um, mm-hmm. in Japan. And and not that not that it's bad. Like you know, Alan Watts is a huge or was a huge proponent of of Zen, but the the whole stripping down and and purifying of something, you know, I don't, I don't think it's always a bad thing. Um, and I think a lot of times the the transformation that is available in a lot of religious traditions is so clouded with ancient terminology, you know, ancient ways of of thinking and archaic concepts that people don't know how to to navigate that sometimes like a secular mindfulness uh, path might be more transformative for them because they don't have to juggle all those archaic concepts, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think also like, I think with any spiritual endeavor, my, this is my belief, you know, is that there's a, that anytime we start to cling to our ideas, like our concepts about the practice, the experience, the, the commitment, you know, the, that anytime we start to cling to it, we, we are, we're sort of headed for some trouble. <laughs> like, you know, there's a, there's a way in which if, if you're open to having a new understanding of the concepts you understood before in a certain way, then it's not so important, right? Like if you start out with just paying attention to your breath, but you're open to having, uh, introducing something that's related to understanding compassion or, you know, then, then it's okay. But if you're, if you decide I'm only going to count my breath and you hold really rigidly to that, then you're going to, you're then going to end up with a manipulated experience of Mm -hmm. what really is. Um, and yeah, I, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of Buddhism. Um, and you mentioned Zen Buddhism having a particular flavor and Tibetan Buddhism has a really particular flavor. And even in, within Zen Buddhism, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is a pretty well-known Buddhist monk, is a, is a Vietnamese Zen monk. And, and his practices and his teachings are like, so different than if you go to a, a Jap, more of a Japanese lineage than monastery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, think about some people might have an image of Zen meditation, and this is sometimes true. They may have an Im- you may have an image of it that's like um, monks with like sticks that are making sure you're sitting up straight and not falling asleep, and you know, really like a really rigid mm-hmm. practice, and like. Thich Nhat Hanh is like one of the softest, gentlest like teachers, right? And he's encouraging children to learn to meditate while they eat oranges. Like he's not that. Mm-hmm. Then 
that form of Zen, right? So right. there's a lot of there's a lot of diversity, just like there's a lot of different diversity within Christianity or you know Judaism or you know these other faith traditions. Circling back, what about the the mindfulness programs that are introduced in like uh, large corporations like like Google or Facebook or Amazon or whatever? Like, yeah. And I, th- I think that there's a trauma and anxiety response that happens when productivity is the highest goal. Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes, it, at least from the outside, it seems like some of these companies are using mindfulness as a way to manage the stress that they are providing, inflicting, inflicting to, to employees. Yeah. So like, what do you, what do you say about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there again, right? Like anything we touch is, is, can be manipulated. <laughs> I, I, um, I think a couple things about it. I mean, I mean, the first thing I would say is that when people start to really pay attention to their, their experience of the, the now, the reality, what's happening right now, you know, um, regardless of what, if the company is teaching that, that simple thing, like a way to experience this present moment awareness, I think like the teachings are strong in that. Like, I I think we will have awakenings. People Mm -hmm. will have new clarity and awakenings. And some of that clarity might be, they are inflicting pain and they're trying to get me to not see the pain. But the reality is that if you're paying attention to your present awareness, like you're going to, some people are going to see that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's power in more people seeing clearly reality. Yeah. Regardless of the motivations of the people teaching them to see reality. Yeah. Um, And so I don't think, um, I think I want people to have pure intentions when they offer the teachings. Um, and, but I don't think we should um, discount the potential for even a simple teaching like that um, to actually have profound positive impacts, mm-hmm. even if the intention of the teacher or the organizing body of that isn't entirely pure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. And it seems like there's a both and like there's this Mm -hmm. truth that we have what we need within us to find the peace in any situation. And and we shouldn't um, deprive ourselves of that to alleviate suffering um, where we are, but also to hold intention this idea that maybe our bodies are telling us something important when they rebel against overconsumption and exploitation. And, and I think too, that like, if people like say at Google or or wherever, if they are able to, to go deeply enough, they, they, like you said, will have uh, some sort of awakening to the, the point that they might see, like, maybe I don't need to be here. Maybe I don't need this in my life. And maybe not everybody would get there, but, but I think enough to make it worth it, worth its while. Yeah. You know, I love the point that you just brought up, this point of um, um, this is sometimes confusing in mindfulness 
teaching. And actually, you know, I was taught by, by, you know, first by people who had a, I think a very wholesome spiritual intention. So, you know, not, not trying to sort of water it down or simplify it or pull the spirituality out of it or anything like that. And, and I was confused about this for a long time, which is, um, that there's a teaching in mind in mindfulness in general, but also this applies to the Buddhist lineages that, you know, developed some of these practices, but there's a teaching in mindfulness in general. That's like, you can be with what is, you don't have to change and fight against the experience you're having now. Mm -hmm. And, and ultimately there's also a teaching that like, there's wisdom, like learn from what's, happening in your current experience and make choices to to alleviate suffering whenever you can Mm -hmm. and those are kind of confusing things to hold together right because sometimes the first teaching is just like be with what's happening does that does that mean i have to accept things that are not right does that does that mean i have to accept injustice does that mean i have to accept physical pain? Does it mean I have to accept emotional pain? You know, does it mean I have to allow people to treat me badly? Like it is a little confusing Mm -hmm. at first, but it is a both and. And just naming that it's not just confusing if you learned mindfulness at Google, it's confusing if you learned mindfulness at a Buddhist retreat center. And it's confusing, like, you know, if you learn it in a church basement, it's confusing. That is confusing. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's more confusing from the outside than it is from the inside because I think there's, there's wisdom in that, um, you can't change things really unless you see things as they are, which, which is clear saying, which is Vipassana, which happens when, when you're still. And so until you're still, you can't see things as they are. And until you see things as they are, you can't change them. So like, actually engaging and accepting what is, is a way to open the door for creativity and for new things to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. What is the mindfulness experience like for you? And I know the object, you know, in any meditation isn't to experience something, but looking back, like projecting your awareness back onto when you are engaging in your practice, how would you describe it? Yeah, well, I mean, um, so, so sometimes, you know, the experience is being able to watch the 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 busyness of the mind like i love the i love the saying that you know our mind secretes thoughts the way our mouth secretes saliva like like I, and i also sometimes laugh about just like the shamelessness of the thinking like just we'll think anything like we'll imagine stories that are just completely fictitious just to keep itself busy having thoughts like and so and so a lot of times the mindfulness practice is really just um experiencing that experiencing getting a little space between 
the thoughts, the emotions of physical sensations as sort of um, things that are happening in me, but they aren't me. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a lot of times the experience. Um, And then the other thing I'll say, which is sort of a happened later in my practice is that the more I've introduced compassion based practices, sort of um, cultivating more cultivating beneficial states of mind rather than just observing Mm -hmm. the mind as it is. Right. So observing the mind as it is might be it's having lots of thoughts and some days it's more agitated and some days it's more peaceful. And, you know, that would be just observing the mind as it is. But, but also even part of a pasta tradition, which is essentially saying, let's just observe what is even part of a pasta tradition is cultivating beneficial states of mind, which mm-hmm. is sort of that second piece. Like you can cultivate gratitude, forgiveness, joy, equanimity, compassion, you know, all of these other states of mind. So the more I've balanced out my practice with not just observing reality, but also cultivating these beneficial states, I've started to experience a deeper awareness to what I would call like a loving awareness that sits and holds, is present for whatever, you know, shameless thinking my mind is off onto or whatever physical sensation or whatever emotional turmoil I'm experiencing sort of a very big and spacious loving presence. And for me, I sometimes on rich, like longer retreats would have access to that kind of awareness. I guess looking back on it, I think probably I did sometimes have that experience early on. But it really wasn't until I started to balance out my practice that I experienced that more consistently. Yeah, I it, it reminds me of the way that that Ken Wilber describes it, and he uses kind of like, in my opinion, a, a little bit like sexist language to describe it. But he talks about how like the feminine impulse in meditation is to to accept fullness, and then the masculine is to accept emptiness. Mm. And I think the, the scales kind of tip towards emptiness a lot, mm-hmm. but that, that you kind of have to have both. And I, I think it was Jack Cornfield that I heard recently that said that like the, the empty sky of the mind, like the, the Rigpa in, in Tibetan Buddhism is the heart. And mm. so that when you, you put the mind within the heart and you cultivate those, um, yeah. Those, those virtues, from my experience, it almost seems like a shortcut in a way because there's not, uh, such an emphasis on emptiness. And, and I like the language you used about cultivating because to me, when I think cultivating, I think gardening or, you know, growing. And with that, that metaphor, like the seed is already there. You're mm-hmm. just providing it an environment to, to flourish. So all yeah. that stuff that you're trying to get isn't outside of you. It's, it's already there and you're just Absolutely. helping it to grow. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the poly word for, um, well, what, what we, we meaning, you know, white Westerners have typically translated the Pali word chitta to be mind. Mm-hmm. 
because it's related to mindfulness, but the, the actual, a more accurate translation is a word that we don't have in our language, which is mind heart. Mm. So, um, so it's interesting how, you know, some of our maybe Western, you know, dominant culture sort of language and, and our understanding of the world, which is so influenced by the words that we have available to us, right, has sort of um, initially this, um, this wave of mindfulness that came through in sort of the 70s and 80s, really, they chose mind instead of heart as the translation. Mm-hmm. And so much of the focus has been on that emptiness. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and I've heard Jack and Tara even sort of acknowledge like, you know, the, the teachings back then were, were tilted, you know, towards just the seeing of what, of what is happening now. Um, but, but they weren't, it's not that that was the only teaching. It's just that like, it was like sort of through our lens, we, we picked a focus on that, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. And I, I think that the masculine feminine, I, I hadn't heard the sort of emptiness fullness comparison, but I actually think it's, it's really helpful. I, I, I think a lot about sort of masculine and feminine energy, not, not so much as a male or female trait, mm-hmm. like a gender trait, but actually that like, we have both of those energies inside of us, mm-hmm. just like we have anger inside of us and we have joy inside of us. And just like we have compassion inside of us and we have jealousy inside of us. Like we have both masculine and female energies inside of us. And that oftentimes coming into better balance and acceptance and understanding, like just right seeing, clear Mm -hmm. seeing of those qualities creates a tremendous amount of freedom and clarity about how to navigate the world. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's that's really good. What type of meditation do you want to provide for our listeners? Yeah, well, you know, I, one of the practices I love to share right now is a self-compassion practice. Um, there's a lot of reasons why we resist self-compassion. Um, you know, we might think it leads to self-pitying or it might lead to sort of a lack of motivation or it might lead to selfish behavior, um, maybe kind of a kind of weakness. And there's a ton of really interesting research being done right now about whether or not those assumptions we make about self-compassion are true, like whether being kind to ourselves actually results in those concerning outcomes. And I have just been like blown away by the, the, the results of that decade or so of research, like really showing that actually like soldiers going into battle who, um, have a quality of self-compassion, which they may not learn through a practice like this. They may have been raised sort of in their family culture to have that practice or not, not a mindfulness practice of self-compassion, but just an attitude of self-compassion, or they may have been taught self-compassion, but the soldiers that go off to battle and have um, sort of a a high capacity for self-compassion are much less likely to experience PTSD when they come back. Mm-hmm. And that is regardless of the level of combat activity that they see. Oh, so wow. a bigger predictor of your resilience as a soldier is your level of self-compassion than your combat exposure. Mm. Like that is 
incredible. Yeah. Right? Um, and I ha- was a type A high achiever style person growing up. And I thought that I had to be tough on myself in order to be, to get my goals achieved, whatever they were for a long, long time. And there's a ton of research that shows that actually, like if people are faced with a difficult task and they're given self-compassion skills after that difficult task, they fare, they are more likely to be work hard, go back at it, apply themselves to that difficult task a second time than groups that are given what I would consider sort of like self-esteem boosts. Like you're smart, you can do it. You know, like I'm sure you'll do great next time. Or if it was hard for you, it was probably hard for other people or, you know, these kinds of sort of self-esteem boosts. That self-esteem boost group is less likely to apply themselves to a difficult task Mm. uh, than the group that was given a self-compassion response. So I have just been again and again, really impressed by the gift of self-compassion. And I've experienced it for myself that it's created amazing breakthroughs, you know, amazing opportunities to um, confront things that are scary and difficult, you know, emotions or experiences. Um, So I think I'd like to offer self-compassion practice. That's awesome because I, I I don't know if you have the same experience, but initially when, when I started doing like loving kindness meditations, I found that they initially start with yourself and then they, Mm -hmm. they move outward. And it's the intent is to, to move it progressively to, you know, people that you may not know or people that you may have problems with. And so it's, it's like an escalating difficulty, I guess you could say. And, but I always found that the first step was the hardest Because, you know, like your relationship with your own self kind of dictates and determines the function of all your other relationships. So if you don't have a good relationship with yourself, then good luck relating to anything or anyone else. So I think that's, that's an awesome, awesome, uh, a method to, to share for us. Um, so this has been a real treat and can you, can you tell everyone where to go to, to keep up with you and to keep up with your work? Yeah. So um, I'm sure you'll include spellings and things like that in the show notes, but um, my website is marikaoceanjoy.com and that's a great place to learn a little bit more about my work. Um, I also am on Instagram, Marika Ocean, at marikaoceanjoy and, um, and on LinkedIn, Marika Kemble is my last name, uh, K-E-M-B-L-E. So um, yeah, I would love to connect with people out there. Awesome. Yeah, I'll put all the links in the show notes. So Marika, thank you so much for for talking today. This was awesome. Thank you, Jory. I think this podcast is great. I love what you're doing. Okay, everyone, please click the next episode to be led through a self-compassion meditation with Marika. 